You are listening to Love Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program. And I think that's the sense that I wish we all need to be a little more involved and not figure, as we often do, that, you know, voting is enough. Or if we, and if the wrong person gets elected, well, we'll just try it again next time. I think we have to all become a little more involved in our communities and really in ultimately the political system to make it work better again. Can we think about how both of these parties, uh, in a lot of ways, have their roots in whiteness and have their roots in in white supremacy. Abraham Lincoln um, did not think that black people and white people were equal by any stretch of the imagination. He articulated that very uh, uh, proudly, actually, in one of the early Lincoln-Douglas debates, I think in 1857. Um, And, you know, the Democratic Party has its roots in the KKK, in the Dixiecrat South. So um, I think we need more white folk to shift the conversation. This is Dr. Lisa Belisle, and you are listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 299. Living History, airing for the first time on Sunday, June 11, 2017. Philosopher George Santayana is remembered for having said, those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. During times of turmoil, we do well to recall how we got to be where we are. Today we speak with career journalist Douglas Brooks about his book, Statesman, George Mitchell and the Art of the Possible, and with Dr. Christopher Petrella, whose academic career has explored questions at the intersection of race, criminality, and citizenship. Thank you for joining us. Love, Maine Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port where every body is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at aristel.com. My next guest is Douglas Rooks, who is a career journalist who worked at weekly and daily newspapers for 25 years. His first book, Statesman, George Mitchell and the Art of the Possible, was published last year. Thanks so much for coming in. Glad to be here. I enjoyed reading Statesman, and, um, and I was really impressed with just the sort of the breadth of information that you had to go through to to actually create this book and the fact that you probably left a lot out in the end. It's amazing how much you have to leave out when you write a book. So why did you get involved if you are someone who is, uh, has been a journalist for all of these years? Why did you decide that writing a book was something you wanted to pursue? I'd always wanted to write a book, uh, several books probably, and now I hope maybe that I've published one, I will get the chance to write more. Um, Book writing is very different than short-form journalism, which is what I've done for newspapers and magazines, you know, nationally and in Maine for many years. Um, Writing a book just requires a level of commitment and focus that I think is, is very liberating for a journalist, because you never really get to spend that much time on any one thing if you are, you know, work for a newspaper, as I did for many years. And really being able to dig into a subject um, like George Mitchell was, uh, turned out to be a very wonderful thing for me. Why did you decide to go into journalism in the first place? Well, it was kind of accidental. Um, I thought I would be, I I, I love to read. I was a great reader uh, throughout high school and college, and I studied English literature, graduated from Colby. 
and um, I really felt something to do with words was, but I had no idea really. In those days, it was amazing. We didn't track ourselves into careers, you know, when we were 13 years old. <laughs> I really graduated from college not knowing exactly what I wanted to do. So I built a house in New Hampshire. That was the first thing I did for my family. And I discovered that there was this newspaper job fairly nearby in New Hampshire. And, you know, you wouldn't think this would ever happen, but um, I called up and they interviewed me and they hired me. <laughs> so that's how I got into newspapers. It wasn't a very intentional thing. If you've been doing this for 25 years, you've seen a lot of changes in the field of journalism. En enormous changes, enormous changes. So tell me about, um, I mean, I'm thinking, obviously, we didn't have we didn't even have personal computers in, mm -hmm, in all mm -hmm, of the yeah. uh, in all of the homes at that time. We yes. definitely didn't have the internet. We didn't have Google. Yes. I mean, we obviously we had phones, but there were still landlines. I mean, these are just like kind of mechanical things. Yeah, yeah. I started writing on a, a manual typewriter. I mean, my first stories were whacked out on that thing, and you know, I, I haven't used a typewriter in years, but I could probably go back if I had to. <laughs> and you also had. Um, you were doing journalism at a time where it was really like on the streets journalism. You actually had to go look at primary sources. You probably, mm -hmm. you had to go do the interviews, probably a lot of them in person. I mean. Yeah, we did, we did a lot of work on the phone, but, but uh, I love that part of it. I mean, uh, I happened to be in a small town, Wolfboro, New Hampshire, um, during the presidential primaries in 1980. Now, New Hampshire as the first primary was a bigger deal then than it is today. And people like Ronald Reagan and George Bush the Elder and Howard Baker were coming through. I got to talk to all of them. You know, I was like 25 years old, something like that. And I was talking to all these amazing politicians that you know normally you never get to meet as a journalist. I mean today you're kept a mile away from politicians. Um, that was a really good thing and I actually miss that part of journalism. There's been a lot of conversation lately about um, what's being called fake news. Mm -hmm. What's your response to that? I have no idea. I mean, I, I think it's it's an absurd concept. I mean, there is no such thing as fake news, except that people sometimes fake the news. But, you know, fake news in my day was the National Enquirer. Then everybody knew that the National Enquirer made up all their stories. They weren't real. But you just figured people reading it didn't care. Um, the idea that you would get fake news on national networks and people would be debating this is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, we can find out what the facts of a situation are. They're sometimes a little muddled and, you know, sometimes you have to go three or four different stories. As a journalist, I've had this happen to me. It's not clear what happened at first, but you can get there. So the whole idea that there's something fake about the news, we just can't really have that. We can't. As a society and as a, a, you know, as a political system, we can't have that concept constantly intruding into our thinking. Let's get over it. That's my that's my take on it. Do you think that part of what happens is that um, because there's such immediacy to news these days, it's not just a six o'clock news yep. uh, cast on television or you know a twice daily newspaper. There's such immediacy that sometimes people maybe get a little, I don't want to use the word lazy in a derogatory way, but maybe aren't as thorough as they could be with their fact checking. I, I do worry about that um, because the 24 hour news cycle, which was just coming into being when I left, you know, um, my newspaper jobs behind. Um, I was worried about it then, and I'm more worried about it now because I do think people absolutely, they tend to go to the first place in their reactions. 
are, are often very emotional and visceral and wrong, as it turns out. You know, I mean, you can give any number of examples of things. When you go back and look at it more carefully, you realize it was more complicated than I thought. And journalism at one time had a kind of a filtering process in it that it largely lacks today. And I don't have any, you know, magical answer to this, but I think each of us as Americans, as Mainers, and as citizens of our own towns, you know, need to be a little more critical in about what we read and also self-critical and realize that our own biases and our own tendencies sort of steer us in certain directions. Um, you know, we have to be citizens. I, I'm, I'm preaching this in my next book, which is about Maine politics, that we all have to become citizens again and take that responsibility seriously. Nobody else is going to do the job of being a citizen for us. We have to do it. When did we stop being citizens? Well, you know, I, I don't think we've stopped being citizens, but I think the concept of citizenship needs some reevaluation. You know, my, my subject, George Mitchell, has wonderful, he, he gave several, many speeches about his experiences when he was a federal judge. He was only a federal judge for about seven months, but he was right here in Portland at the courthouse there, and he did naturalization ceremonies. And the, the punchline to his, um, when he asked new people why they became Americans. Why do they want to become Americans? And uh, I think it was a young man from the Philippines who, who told him, he said, in America, everyone has a chance. And that was his summation of what it was like to be in this country. But Mitchell's other comment on that was that Americans who were born here tend not to appreciate, you know, what a wonderful privilege they've been given to live in this great country. And I think that's the sense that I which we all need to be a little more involved and not figure, as we often do, that you know voting is enough. Or if we and if the wrong person gets elected, well, we'll just try it again next time. I think we have to all become a little more involved in our communities and really in ultimately the political system to make it work better again. Why did you choose George Mitchell? Well, that was an easy choice actually, because um, uh, George Mitchell came into the Kennebec General. Journal newsroom in 1985, and I met him for the first time. And he was a U.S. senator who just kind of showed up, and they said, "Oh, George Mitchell's here. You might want to talk to him." And I was really fascinated by him because he was so unusual as a politician in those days, or this one, where he knew tremendous amounts about history. Um, I was amazed that I and I can't remember the country. I asked him about some fairly obscure country in Europe. It was probably in the Balkans or somewhere like that. And he not only answered the question, you know, brilliantly, which I wasn't necessarily expecting him to know, he wasn't on the relevant committees, but he told me the background, the history, and, you know, I had no idea that he originally aspired to be a history professor. But he was amazingly good at uh, understanding and knowing things that, you know, very few people in or out of politics know. And that was his strength because he just knew more than anyone else. So naturally, as somebody who was always, as a journalist, seeking to know more, um, I said, you know, and after he left the Senate, particularly about 10 years later, I had just this thought that really he would make a good book. Um, and it took a long time to get there, but, but I finally made it. I'm not sure that everybody remembers, and maybe some people weren't alive, so that's why they don't remember this, but he ran for governor. He and, did. And he lost. He did. Yeah, he did. And it was a very, um, it, it was one of the great learning experiences of George Mitchell's life. Um, he did. He was, uh, he lived in Portland at the time. And ironically, given that he, he grew up amid really severe poverty in Waterville, um, his grandfather lived right on the river at the time that the Kennebec River in Waterville was a sewer. I mean, absolutely it was a sewer. It stunk to high heavens all summer long. It was the lowest you could go. 
And George Mitchell and his uh, siblings went to college. Uh, he went to law school and became incredibly successful. It was ironic because he was a very serious man, young man and, and a very serious lawyer, um, very good uh, in one-to-one -one contacts, but he didn't project well in large groups. And I think that was what happened in 1974. He didn't make that connection to the broader collection of people you need to do to be successful at a statewide level. Um, but he learned an enormous amount f uh, through that. And I said it was ironic that he was perceived almost as like this, this you know, button-down lawyer because he came from nowhere. But he had succeeded in becoming a different person, and now he had to learn how to connect with Mainers. And by the time he ran again, which was eight years later for the U.S. Senate, he had learned those lessons very well. He not only could connect with people on a personal basis, but he really he was able to hold up just a couple of major issues at the time. One was Social Security because um, Ronald Reagan had been talking about reducing benefits. Um, one was acid rain, which was the prelude to what we now know as global warming. Um, he had a couple things that he could get people's attention with and then he could make relationships with them. And he, I mean, we've had a lot of good politicians in Maine, but uh, if you just measure it by the box office, he, his 81% uh, of the vote in his 1988 re-election race is still the record for any statewide race in Maine. So he became very, very good at his job. Well, it's interesting the way you're describing this because I think people are inclined to believe that there is something that they are good at by virtue of, I guess, their birth. Mm -hmm. And if they're not good at it, then maybe they don't need to get good at it. And you're saying he didn't necessarily project himself well to large groups, but he learned how to do this. He, he yes. taught himself how to do this. You know, you don't see it that often. I mean, most political careers, frankly, either you have it or you don't, because there are not that many chances. And, and Mitch will be the first to bet he got a second chance when he didn't expect it. He was appointed to the U.S. Senate in 1980 when his mentor, a guy he'd worked for years earlier, Ed Muskie, decided to step down and become Secretary of State. It's the only time in Maine's entire history that we've had a vacant Senate seat um, in the last century. And George Mitchell was the guy who got the job. Now, and he'd be the first to admit, he would never have probably run for office otherwise. But having been th given that gift by Governor Joe Brennan, uh, another good Portland guy, um, he made the most of it. And so he did have that second chance. He was able to go on to his remarkable career after that. One of the things that I, I thought about as I was reading your book is it's interesting to be writing about a person who is kind of an, an icon, mm -hmm. but is still alive, is yes. very much going to read this book, hopefully, well, I, I, and collaborate with you, presumably. Yes. Well, I thought an awful lot about that. Now, fortunately, uh, we had done a lot of interviews uh, some years earlier because the book, I really wanted to write it back in the early years of the century, as we now can say. Um, and for whatever reason, it just never quite panned up. But I had a lot of material from Mitchell himself, and he had been very helpful, really, in trying to steer me in the right direction. You know, this is just the way he is. He's very helpful. You know, he helped me, you know, we were trying to find a publisher, and he was helping me, um, not not in a pushy way. And you know, one of the remarkable things is George Mitchell. Yes, he is alive. Um, there's a tremendous amount in the book. Um, I'm sure some of it is wrong, <laughs> or at least from his perspective, uh, there are some problems with it. And yet, he never um, tried to interfere in any way. And he's only been extremely complimentary since the book came out. And you do you you do get nervous about that because I've known I've had other friends who have written biographies of people that have not turned out nearly as well. <laughs> 
Yeah, it seems like there could be a lot of potential problems, and not just from the person you're writing about, but from the people around that of person. Of course. Yeah, and, that, and that's, and you know, I, I realized in retrospect, I had to pass a bunch of tests. For instance, I interviewed all of his surviving siblings, um, and I, I know they all talked to George a number of times, probably before they consented to do that, because, you know, the Mitchell family, like most families, is very protective of um, their their members, and I had to sort of pass some sort of test. But as far as I can tell, he never told anyone, don't talk to him. <laughs> it was usually, it was almost always the opposite. And, um, and there were many people I interviewed at great length for the book that I did not know going in, and really George was the only connection. And I have to say, it's, it's, it went rather well. I don't think I've had anyone yet, yet coming up and waving a book at me and saying, this isn't the truth, <laughs> so far anyway. One of the things that struck me was um, just how difficult being a politician was on his personal life, mm, and the yes, fact that yes. he he was previously married and he has a daughter from yes. his first marriage, and it, it doesn't seem as though, at least according to what I read, that there's a lot of acrimony. But still, it's it's divorce, and it's yes. very very hard. I think it was one of the hardest things that. George Mitchell and Sally Mitchell, his first wife, ever went through. I mean, they they were a very devoted couple. Um, they met um, outside of the Catholic Church in Georgetown in Washington at a time when George Mitchell had no intention of having a political career. Um, and their agreement, she had actually worked for a couple of political offices in New Hampshire, and I think she was at the Federal Aviation Administration at the time he met her, and she did not like politics. So it was it was too bad in a way that he was married to someone who really didn't like politics because that just became a bigger and bigger strain. And I think, I think it was the moment when he realized that he would be running for, um, you know, the Senate for a full six-year term that, um, you know, it really wasn't going to work. Um, I think she did try um, briefly moving to Washington because senators mostly lived in Washington in those days, and it just didn't work for them. Um, but he, you know, he really looked after him. Um, there's amazing little stories there. You know, his his accountant became her accountant and his daughter's accountant, <laughs> and George paid for them all, even though he obviously wouldn't have to after a divorce. Um, they just seemed like a very, very well-matched couple who were who ended up being driven apart, much the way, you know, if somebody wants to live in California and they love it there and you want to live in Maine, guess what? It's probably not going to work long-term. And it didn't for them, but it did not... It did not lead to any acrimony within the family. He seems to have um, people that he becomes friends with or acquainted with and carries those relationships forward really for a long, long time. Remarkable. Yes, his, his friend Shep Lee, who is an auto dealer, his, his, his son, Adam Lee, um, as many people are getting to know better in this area, um, Shep was uh, said about George Mitchell, he said, you know, he never forgot his friends. He never forgot where he came from. And that's very unusual because most of the time when you ascend to the levels that George Mitchell did, not just in politics, but in law and in business and in a whole lot of other areas, you know, he became a very eminent person. He's known around the world. Um, and yet he always had time for his old friends. And I think that is kind of remarkable, but it shows how well grounded in Maine George Mitchell really is. As I was reading back through the book, one of the things that I um, I kept coming back to was I lived through a lot of this. Mm -hmm. I've lived in Maine for a big chunk of my life. But I think as I was going through it, probably because I was too young to really know, um, there were things that were happening that um, 
I, I was kind of surprised to go back and have the retrospective on. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I guess most people, some people would say middle-aged now, I'm in my 40s. Mm -hmm. So did you find things as you were going through that you had lived through once or you had reported on once that surprised you looking backward? Yes, absolutely. You know, it's just amazing the impressions you have. And, you know, I was a journalist, so I was always reading the news. I was always getting AP news, feed, news feeds all throughout the day. I was writing editorials on every subject <laughs> known to editorial pages, and yet I missed a lot. Um, and in researching my next book, which is more focused on Maine politics, there were certain key episodes in state government history that I had either, I didn't really miss them, but I, I misevaluated their significance. Um, I didn't understand the full significance of what was going on at the time. And I think this is why I was talking earlier about being a citizen. It's really important for everybody to know their own story you know, to understand all it in all its complexities and let's face it, life is a very complicated thing. We we need to simplify it for the sake of getting through it. But we also need to look back occasionally at least and saying, hmm, yes, that, that event seems very different to me now that I understand more about it. So I think that's a, that that's that it's a wonderful process really for research because I had not done any significant amount of research on this scale anyway since I was in college. And I spent like 13 months in the Bowdoin College Library to research this book. And um, in fact, the only reason I stopped was I realized I'd never get the book written if <laughs> I didn't just wind it up. But it would be fun to go back and find out how, much, how many more things there are there that are interesting to know that I can find out. So knowing all of this about George Mitchell and knowing how he's been such a part of the fabric of not only Maine but the country and really the world in, in many ways, do some of the recent things that have happened in politics surprise you? They, they don't surprise me because, again, I've been following politics for a long time, and I can see, um, you know, it, it will not come as a big surprise to um, your listeners that I think politics is kind of in a bad way these days. Um, I just think the level of conflict has gotten out of hand. I mean, there's always a lot of conflict in politics. People have to understand that politics is not pretty to watch, and somebody is always trying to get you know, get the jump on someone else. Somebody is always trying to pull off a deal that is going to inconvenience someone else. This is part of the nature of public life because we have difficult issues to settle and nobody gets 100% of what they want. But I think the lack of civility, which Mitchell himself has talked about repeatedly recently, is very concerning because, you know, it used to be that George Mitchell and Bob Dole, two of the really of the great Senate leaders of our day, would go at it. I mean, you listen to them on the Senate floor, they'd just be hammering away on each other and saying, you know, that's not true, Senator. And, you know, you, you said earlier that this is the case and now you're, you know, it was a real debate. But at the end of the day, they went out and had a drink together and sat down and talked about their families. That is so important to a good political system, and I suspect it is very, very rare in Washington today. And we miss that. You know, you, you have to have those connections that go beyond. When I was saying earlier, you know, do your job well, you need to be able to do your job well, but also still remain, you know, human beings to each other. And uh, unless we can do that and start getting serious about that again, of, you know, bite your tongue, maybe you don't want to say that, even though it's a great zinger and it would look great on Twitter or whatever. If we can't do that, then I suspect we're kind of doomed to keep repeating this, the, the churn that keeps going on there. And, you know, one election comes, another election comes, but it doesn't really seem to make much difference in terms of how we live or what the government's able to do for its people. So how did we get to this place? How did we get mm. to the place where we don't mind being um, uncivil to one another? 
you know, I, do, I, I don't think anybody really knows. I mean, we can see it happening and we can deplore it, but what do we actually do about it? And I think for each of us, we have to think about that some. I'm trying to think a lot about myself, and um, I'm getting a little more politically active myself. Um, for instance, I plan to testify on two bills up at the legislature, not because I, I used to when I was at the Maine Press Association, I would represent them. I worked for some clients that required not lobbying, per se, but just testimony to committees of the legislature. I've done that. But this is just for me. I, I'm, I'm going to be up there tomorrow, and I'm going to say I'm testifying as a citizen, and I'm willing to take the risks that go along with that. You know, I'm stepping out my own professional comfort zone here because I think certain issues are so important that we all need to make a special effort to, uh, to play a part to the degree that we can. And I guess my part is I feel like as I've studied this stuff for so long and I know a lot about Maine politics, maybe I could help at a difficult moment with some legislators. I may be completely wrong about that, but I'm going to try anyway. And I think we all need to just try a little bit, you know, talk to our neighbors. It's very important. You know, we know a lot of families in which people are very divided by the last presidential race. You have to talk to those people and find out what it is and don't just say, oh my God, they just, they voted for the wrong person. How could they do that? That's not going to help. But talking to them on a more human level may help. We got to try it. That's my, that. That's where I start, anyway. Well, I I agree with you. I mean, I have I have patients that come in to see me as a family doctor, and they are on both sides. Of, well, I, I don't even want to say both sides. They're on the political spectrum. You know, some of them are kind of left leaning um, Republicans, and some of them are right leaning Democrats, and some of them are in one camp or another. But you know, if you can actually have a conversation, you realize that you probably closer together on a lot of the issues than you realize. I think that I think that there are really more attempts to divide us um, than are really needed. I mean, if I look at the George Mitchell is a great example of this. He said that, um, and of course, this may seem a little dated now that we have a new president who is constantly on the airwaves with talking about what he thinks is a problem. But Mitchell was using the example of World War II. And his figure, I believe, was that 78 million people were killed in World War II, as a, as either as a result of combat or actually in fighting. It's just a number that none of us can even imagine how big it is. And his comment was, well, if a bomb blows up in an airport in Germany or wherever, and 30 people are killed, it's worldwide news. And we're all like, oh my goodness, this, this huge problem. Well, you know, there's where the perspective has to come in. Um, we may not be as unsafe and insecure as we actually think. You know, I happen to believe that. I feel very safe in Maine. I really do. And yes, I'm an older guy and all that. But if I were a kid, I'd still feel very safe. A lot of people come here to be safe and they feel safe here. But you know, frankly, in most parts of this great country, we're very safe. And we might just want to, you know, when somebody is trying to alarm us about something, particularly about another group of people or another religion or whatever, we might just stop from it and say, you know, Really, because most of the time you find it, as Mitchell talks about often, is these people are like us in many ways. You know, they all want their kids to succeed in life. They all want them to get a good education and good health care, which is a big problem in this state and this country now to get everyone access to health care. And if we approach it from those perspectives, yes, there is a lot of agreement. You rarely get agreement, disagreement on people saying, you know, kids should have access to health care. Well, then the question becomes, how do we do that? And naturally, there are going to be divisions about how. But if you look at the goal and you focus on that, it really changes the conversation. I really think it does. 
Doug, when should we expect your next book? Well, it's now scheduled for spring of 2018. And the reason I have to get it out, we're going to have some big political contests in Maine. And I figure a book about politics will probably do best in that year. And also, I just would like to get it out by then because I have a lot of ideas that I've, you know, kind of been circulating about my brain over the years. And this is a great opportunity to put it together into something a little bit like a political program. We don't see very much of that these days. You know, you read party platforms and they don't really say anything. But I like party platforms from the old days. They said, we're going to do this, this, and this. And, you know, they were elected and they did it, or at least they tried. That's, that's the kind of politics I want to see. I've been speaking with Douglas Rooks, who is a career journalist who worked at weekly and daily newspapers for 25 years. His first book, Statesman, George Mitchell and the Art of the Possible, was published last year. Congratulations on a great book, and I look forward to the next one. Thank you so much. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is Portland's largest gallery and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space. The current show schedule includes Nancy Simmons, Elizabeth Hoy, and many more. For complete show details, please visit our website, artcollectormaine.com. In the studio with me today, I have Christopher Petrella, who teaches at Bates College and explores questions about the intersection of race, criminality, and citizenship. His work has been featured in the New York Times, Harper's Magazine, Boston Review, and The New Yorker. His research has appeared on ESPN and NPR and has been debated in the U.S. House of Representatives. Great to have you here today. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. So tell me about um, this U.S. House of Representatives debate. It's very interesting that what you're doing has made it all the way over there. Yeah, um, a few years ago uh, in 2013, 2014, um, one of my my colleagues uh, and I um, were working on questions of prison privatization. Uh, And it turns out that there's um, a very deep amount of secrecy and lack of transparency when it comes to private prison companies in the United States. Um, And so we endeavored to uh, help uh, Representative Sheila Jackson Lee out of Houston, a Democrat, uh, draft a bill that would require private prison companies like um, CoreCivic and the GEO Group, which are these um, monstrosities of publicly traded for-profit prison companies, to disclose the very same information that their public counterpart agencies already have to disclose. So in simpler terms, if you're a journalist and you want to access information about the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, you can file a FOIA request, and if it's reasonable, you'll be able to obtain that information. If you try to find similar information on, on pu- privately, uh, publicly held private prisons, um, you can't. They generally claim a proprietary exemption clause um, and say that the disclosure of such information would generally put them at a competitive market disadvantage. Um, And so we found this, we among many other people, found this particularly problematic, of course, since uh, we as private citizens uh, ultimately pay uh, for private prison companies to exist uh, to a large degree. Um, and so the act was called the, the Private Prison uh, Information Act. Uh, it was uh, introduced in 2014-2015. Uh, uh, and uh, it hasn't made it out of committee. Uh, my understanding is that it will be reintroduced very, very shortly. Um, so we're looking forward to hopefully some fruitful results from that debate. 
This seems like a very um, specific field that you've chosen to go into. I know that you have degrees from Bates College, Harvard University, University of California, Berkeley. What sent you down this path and what was your educational background? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I'm very much generally um, interested in questions of justice and how we can expand the the we of an evolving democracy. Um, I, I was, uh, I lived in the, my family and I lived in the Hartford area until I was about four, at which point we moved to this tiny, uh, tiny um, sort of bucolic uh, rural community called Summers, which is in north central Connecticut. Um, Summers has more prisons than s- stoplights. Um, so I grew up in a town with, with three prisons, which included the maximum security uh, facility. At the time, it also included uh, death row. Um, Connecticut has, um, um, has since gotten rid of capital punishment. Um, and so questions of carcerality, questions of containment, punishment were in my backyard. And that generally served as an entree into beginning to ask questions about the relationship between race and democracy or sort of more, more capaciously race, democracy and incarceration. Um, I discovered uh, as a fairly young person, I think I was around 16 when the, the um, 2000 um, US census came out and discovered that um, somewhere between uh, 12 to 15% of my community um, was what the U.S. Census would classify as black and or African-American, despite the fact that I went to school with very few black peers. So this raised some questions, right? Where are these folks being counted and why? And so with the help of um, a progressive um, teacher, um, we looked into this matter and um, he helped me to understand that um, for the purposes of census designation, um, resource allocation, um, sometimes legislative apportionment, prisoners are counted in the, in the census tract in which the facility is located as opposed to from where they came. Um, and that struck me as particularly problematic. Um, for a whole host of reasons, it sort of perverts the democratic process. Um, I, I later came to, to understand this as prison gerrymandering, um, which is an official practice that a lot of states utilize. Um, and what it essentially does is resegregate particular communities um, and then in conjunction um, redistributes wealth. I knew that being a white family in this particular space where in many ways uh, we were benefiting directly and complicit with um, these prisons housing many black and brown folk in my community um, called me to um, think through what that complicity looked like right and began to ask questions well what does it mean to be um, white in the United States Um, and I've sort of carried those questions with me Uh, sense. It's a complicated conversation, and I think it's one that not everybody feels comfortable having. I I think that's right. (laughs) I think that's right. Questions of race, it it seems as though we've we've kind of in some ways come very far, and in other ways they've maybe stalled out Mm -hmm. to a pretty significant degree. 
how do you get comfortable as a self-identified white male mm-hmm. talking about these really sticky issues? Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know that I'll ever be comfortable. Um, I think I'm very much a, a work in progress, but I would say it begins with the recognition that maybe we don't know as much as we thought we knew about who we are. Uh, and I say we as white folk. Um, James Baldwin has a fantastic quote um, from the mid-60s in, in which he, he writes, um, white people are trapped in a history they don't understand. And I think that's very much an accurate diagnosis of the American dilemma. Um, when did, you know, a question I often ask my students, my, my white students, self-identified white students is, when did you know you were white? Right, and that process of becoming white, that process of American socialization as white, um, is one that's complex and one that uh, means different things to to different people. Um, so um, I began to explore that through the through the prison question, which in a lot of ways is why I think it's impossible to ask questions about what punishment looks like in this country. Um, without thinking through questions of race, without thinking through questions of democracy, especially because, quite frankly, um, the prison system in the United States, or more accurately, prison systems, came up with the birth of the republic, right? Um, they, were, they were cousins. Um, and so if we're, going to, if we're going to diagnose questions of power, questions of access, questions of freedom uh, in democracy, it would be incomplete not to include questions of punishment. How do students that you teach respond? I know that um, Bates actually has a a history of trying to be as inclusive as possible (laughs) over the decades. Um, But it still has a fairly high percentage, I believe, of white students, as do all the small liberal arts um, and university schools in our state. Mm -hmm. So how do people respond that you are teaching now? Um, I I think... um, Generally, the response has been fairly favorable. I think if you if you meet, and I think this is sort of a general pedagogical good practice, when you're meeting students where they are with where you are, um, it's very difficult to have an inauthentic encounter and conversation. Um, and so I try to uh, open myself up to being uncomfortable. I mean, we, you know, in in every syllabus that I construct, there's always a line. Um, that suggests we're trying to make a safer space for dangerous conversations. And if we can't have those dangerous conversations, um, I don't actually know that we're particularly capable of moving the needle forward on these um, seemingly intractable social issues. Um, But I would say that uh, Bates's um, genealogy uh, I think makes the institution very favorable to having these conversations, both at the classroom level and at the institutional um, level. Something that n- not everyone, kn- many people know that Bates was founded by Orrin Cheney, who was a free will Baptist abolitionist. Um, what folks don't know is that he was great friends with Frederick Douglass. I mean, he, he was right in the mix. He was right in the thick of it. Um, there, there were you know, several um, instances in which Frederick Douglass came um, to Maine um, to visit with Cheney. Um, here in Portland, in fact, Douglass spoke at least twice um, that I know. Um, 
when City Hall used to be in Monument Square, um, he he made a few stops um, there. He also made a, a stop or two up to Lewiston and, and Bates. Um, so the institution, the state of Maine, um, in a lot of ways has a very rich um, history and legacy vis-a-vis abolition. Of course, it doesn't mean that the state um, need is where it needs to be, um, but I certainly think we can draw on those histories um, to influence the present. Having now had one child who's graduated from college and another who's currently um, in school, one of the things that I'm very aware of is the, this kind of culture of microaggressions and this culture of, well, I think you kind of addressed it, that mm-hmm. of um, fear around even having a conversation because mm-hmm. if you say something that's outside of what might be considered politically correct, you're really putting yourself at risk. Mm-hmm. So how do we get to a place of conversation? And how do we get to a place of conversation without having people feel threatened? Mm. <clears throat> this is a complicated question. Um, I think it depends who you are. Uh, and it depends on one's embodied identity. So I can only speak as a white person what that means to me. Um, I would say it means approaching um, questions of potential um, sort of racial tension or just more generally tension related to social power um, with a certain radical openness. And particularly if we can't have these conversations at our institutional, at our educational institutions, then I'm not quite sure where we can have them. Um, but microaggressions <clears throat> are certainly, I, I think, an issue on, on every college campus um, around the country. And um, in part of my role at Bates, um, over the next um, four to five months, we're, we're actually putting together um, an anti-bias bystander intervention training program, hopefully to equip students better. Um, to intervene in real time in these type of incidents, which thankfully are uh, are, are paltry, um, but nonetheless problematic. So um, we're looking at ways for um, students to build literacies when it comes to identifying incidents of bias, intervening in incidents of bias, um, caring for oneself and the target in the aftermath of an incident of bias, and then more generally from an high, from a higher altitude perspective. <clears throat> living one's principles, right? So h- how do we um, sort of transmogrify a lot of the values we have um, into direct um, action, into political engagement, into community conversation and dialogue? Um, and I think that's an evolving process. So we're, we're certainly happy with what we have um, in store in terms of our palette of offerings. But you're right, it's a, it's a thorny issue and one that needs to be addressed around the country. As a white male, have you ever experienced kind of, I guess, reverse bias? Um, no, I have not. Well, you're fortunate. Yeah, I, I would say that. Um, I would say that. I mean, I can. You, you know, I went to. So my PhD is in African American studies, more precisely, African diaspora studies from UC Berkeley, and I would say I was one of maybe three or four white students in that PhD program, um, there was not a a single time that I felt unwelcome. Um, There were times that I felt intellectually and politically challenged. Um, But again, I think that's the the recipe for 
um, e- evolution and growth anyway. Um, my sense has always been um, almost all um, people of color that I ever encountered when they know a white person is deeply invested in the cause and has proven themselves to be a co-conspirator over many years, um, uh, one will welcome you with, with an open hand. Um, that's generally been my experience. So, It also seems the way you're describing it as if uh, it comes from the way that you frame it as well where what you just talked about was that you have felt challenged, but you didn't feel as if it was a bias against you. No, not at all, because I think once you, once you recognize um, all of the accumulated privileges that you've had, that I've had, um, you know, despite growing up in <clears throat> a working-class family, I, I, you know, I, I think part, sometimes the issue with white people is that uh, we think... Uh, that privilege is absolute, right? So the common argument is, yeah, I'm white, but you know, I grew up in a working class household. Yeah, well, yeah, that you you have racial privilege and you don't have economic privilege, and that's that's okay. It doesn't invalidate the fact that um, race is still a salient organizing principle in society, um, and we need to contend that. So I, I think, in some senses, you're you're very right to say that it's a matter of framing. Um, and it's a matter of um, having enough sort of historical literacy and historical sense um, uh, to, to understand the problem correctly. I, I'm also lucky because through a lot of my research and work, um, I've been able to meet other um, staunchly anti-racist white people um, who I can look to as an example. There aren't many, I will say. Um, and some days are, are obviously harder than other to find those examples, um, but they are out there. Um, they, they certainly are out there. And, um, you know, there are, there are a whole host of folk. So John Brown, Howard Zinn. I mean, I could, I could go on. But Well, what is your, what's your criteria for a staunchly anti-racist white person? Um, I, think the, I think the most important ing- ingredient is someone who has a structural or or systemic analysis of white supremacy which is to say that that racism is not exclusively transactional um right it's not necessarily fully based in discrimination but is based in how we choose to organize society right so i think um perhaps um a powerful example could be one of the first pieces of legislation that was passed after the ratification of the U.S. Constitution, which was the U.S. Um, uh, Na- uh, Immigration and Naturalization Act of 1790. And the act expressly prohibited um, non-white people from naturalizing as U.S. citizens. Right? right? That's something we have to contend with. But I, I think that because... In most circles, this history hasn't been exhumed. Um, we don't always have, as white folk, we don't always have the best analysis of how how deep white supremacy goes in our history, in our politics, in our policies. Um, you know, until until uh, a piece of legislation was passed in 1952, there was still a racial restriction on immigration. 
my dad was born in 1952. I mean, that's that's recent history. Um, so, uh, you know, I could I could go on and on, but there there are many examples that um, bring this history very much up to up to the present, right? I mean, um, there is a groundswell of evidence to suggest, per- particularly in the U.S. South, um, that the origin of uh, municipal police departments uh, were in slave patrols, right? So having that type of historical literacy, I think, forces a different analysis and forces a different confrontation. So, I'm finding this also interesting because um, obviously as a medical doctor, my background was educationally more science-based. Mm-hmm. I did have history classes, but they were far fewer than the ones you had and far less extensive, obviously, um, given your educational background. However, my daughter is a history major. and That's awesome. Yes, of course. And that's actually something that I kind of wanted to talk about a little bit, too, and that is the we talk about the value of education and how do you quantify it. You know, mm-hmm. if you go out and you're a doctor, obviously there's a job for you on the other side. Mm-hmm. If you're a history major, then mm-hmm. there's there's a few different paths you can go, but it seems like it's it's, it's less certain. But what you're describing is extremely important mm-hmm. to have people who actually understand the background mm-hmm. of our culture and society. So when you were deciding to get your PhD, <laughs> um, what what did that calculation look like for you? Yeah, well, you know, I, um, I've i never been... Um, uh, my my calculus and calculation has never particularly been um, sort of economistic. I I have to say I very much think there are sort of differences between vocations and professions, and I'm lucky that um, I was able to sort of meet at the intersection of those two um, of those two fields. Um, my thinking as a person in their mid twenties when I started the PhD program uh, was that. Quite simply, we needed more um, white people who understood their history. Um, and if if we if we begin with that proposition um, and sort of build a, a critical mass, I think we we can um, we, we certainly can sort of move the move the ball forward. But I'm very I'm very fortunate. I mean, I w- I'll also say that um, g- good people doing good work find each other. That's always been my experience, and so um, um, I feel fortunate that I've been able to link up with other folks doing um, doing the work. So I'm actually I just got back on on Sunday um, from doing a uh, Know Your Rights uh, training um, camp um, in Chicago um, at the uh, Dusable Museum, which is the Museum for African American History, um, which was fully sponsored. Um, by Colin Kaepernick, um, the former quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers. So um, that's the sort of work I'm talking about. I think they're real people doing real work, and um, it's inspiring to be a part of those conversations and hopefully a part of the solution. So what you're saying to potential history majors out there and current history majors is do what feels important to you and don't necessarily assume that there won't be a job on the other side. Yeah, I think there, well, I'll say this. I think um, my sort of vocational orientation has always come from the words of um, this, this educator, Howard Thurman, um, who wrote, um, 
do what makes you come alive because the world needs people to come alive. Um, I, I think we need to be awake and vigilant and conscious and conscientious um, in order to um, improve our collective lot. So um, I, my sense is if you're doing what you're doing pretty well, um, hopefully over time, um, there will be um, there will be opportunities for you. And if you don't like what you're doing, you're not going to do it well. So, um, you know, I think there are certainly calculations that some people um, will make that are different than uh, mine. Um, but, um, you know, I'm a staunch supporter of the humanities, a staunch supporter of interdisciplinary programs. Um, and, um, you know, I've been very disappointed to know that many of these programs, disciplines, um, are on the chopping block. I, I don't think it's particularly where we need to go as a society. Um, I think we're um, losing opportunities to ask questions that matter very deeply. Um, and that's uh, also, I'd want to be super clear, that's not to suggest that the natural sciences do not matter because I think very much so in my field, um, there are connections that can be made between the natural sciences and questions of power. What do you hope to see happen over the trajectory of your career and really of, of the field that you're working in? Hmm. Two separate questions. Um, I, I've always felt like um, the, the traditional academic route was not particularly made, tailor-made for someone like me. Um, I love writing. Um, I love being able to, um, you know, give talks ar around the country. Um, but I'm aware of the limitations of, you know, for instance, publishing exclusively in academic journals, um, speaking to, you know, other folk who use the same language and have the same units of analysis and in your in in the same discipline um and so i'm sure that in some way shape or form my career will be uh one characterized by hybridization so i very much plan to remain um in the academy in in some capacity um i think that's an important grounding um, I, th I do think theory is important. I do think scholarship is important. My question is always who's seeing it, who is able to access it, um, and are we, are we as scholars and academics making ourselves clear and relevant? Um, and I think this is part of sort of my working class genealogy bubbling over the surface here because, um, you know, if I couldn't understand something, it wasn't relevant to me. Um, you know, not to harp too much on, on Dr. King, but he also, you know, later in his life in the late 60s um, said, if you can't understand something I've said, it's a failure of my education, not yours. And I think as academics, it's, in, it's incumbent upon us um, to make sure we are adding to the conversation, not alienating and marginalizing people who may not have um, the same pedigree, who may not have the same sort of life experiences and, quite frankly, privileges and opportunities. Having said that, I, w I very much want to make sure that I also have one foot um, that is either outside of the academy or able to pivot sort of in agile um, ways. And so um, 
you know, it, it really has been a pleasure um, linking up with the Know Your Rights Initiative um, because it's provided an opportunity to bring some of this sort of rigorous scholarly work um, to uh, a community that's just vastly underserved um, by their institutions. Um, and so I see that in a lot of ways as sort of a way to sort of redistribute knowledge. Um, and I think that's generally been a guiding principle. So how can we ensure that people, all people, have access um, to the sort of knowledge sources and various literacies that I, um, as an instructor at Bates with a PhD, have? If we can do that, then I think we've, um, we're, we're on to something. Um, to your question about where I'd like to see the discipline and, and the field go, um, I very much would like to see, and I think we're getting there, but I would very much like to see more self-identified white people investing themselves of, of questions of not only race, but really just questions of sort of critical social literacies, power, politics. Um, uh, I think that's what, we, um, that's what we sorely need. So for instance, um, you know, in, 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 I think we need more self-identified white folk to be asking questions like, well, you know, should we vote for the Democrat or should we vote for the Republican, uh, as opposed to can we think about how both of these parties uh, in a lot of ways have their roots in whiteness and have their roots in, in white supremacy. Abraham Lincoln um, did not think that black people and white people were equal by any stretch of the imagination. He articulated that very uh, uh, proudly, actually, in one of the early Lincoln-Douglas debates, I think in 1857. Um, and, you know, the Democratic Party has its roots in the KKK, in the Dixiecrat South. So um, I think we need more white folk to shift the conversation. Uh, I think we need new frameworks, new better questions, um, and um, that's where I'd really like to see sort of generally the field go, and also just education more generally. So I know that not every course can engage questions of race in the way that I'm describing, but I think every course certainly can engage questions of power. Um, and um, if we're not doing that, then I think we um, are offering our young people an, an incomplete education. Well, I appreciate the, the work that you are doing, and I hope that what you um, have asked for will materialize over yeah. the course of the next few years to years and years. Yeah, yeah. Well, we plan on making that so. Excellent. So. I've been speaking with Christopher Petrella, who teaches at Bates College and explores questions about the intersection of race, criminality, and citizenship. Thank you so much for all you do and for coming in today. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 299, Living History. Our guests have included Douglas Rooks and Dr. Christopher Petrella. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love, Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love, Maine Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see our Love, Maine Radio photos on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love, Maine Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love, Maine Radio to you each week. 
This is Dr. Lisa Belayo. I hope that you have enjoyed our Living History Show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Berlin City Honda, The Rooms by Harding Lee Smith, Maine Magazine, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Paul Koenig. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasson. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Rebecca Falzano, and Lisa Belisle. For more information on our host's production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com.